Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of TP with TP. That's the podcast with Tom Polos. We have an amazing program for you guys today. From General Hospital, the talented and handsome Nathan Parsons joins me, as does the frontman for Barry Harris and Euphoria, Barry Harris. Also, a guy from my apartment complex claims he's going to drop by. I'll believe it when I see it. Hopefully you guys will hear it. You're listening to the podcast with Tom Polos, a.k.a. TV with TV. All right, here we are live, back with TP with TP. I'm here with the uh, talented, handsome Mr. Nathan Parsons. Nathan, welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. But of course, uh, he is, of course, many of you know him from General Hospital, where he played Ethan Lovett. Am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Oh, yep. thank you. Yep. <laughs> uh, who worked at the Haunted Star Casino. Is that so? That is so. It was a floating casino. <laughs> the best kind of casino. Yeah, of course. Uh, your luck never runs out there. <laughs> um, and we have some questions right off the bat we want to ask you from simply... Looking online, people had a lot of questions for you, and oh. I think rather than just posing them to the ether, we can pose them to the Ethan, and I can just get oh. directly to you. That was so good. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, and so here are some questions in a segment we're calling Questions Asked Online, Answered by Nathan Parsons. These are what people have asked. That's okay. <laughs> Here's actually a question asked. How do I get my hair cut like Nathan Parsons? <laughs> well, it depends on if you're talking about the long haircut or the like regular normal person haircut. Oh, well, uh, give me an answer to both. Okay, the long haircut. The you don't cut is, it. Just don't cut it. Yeah. <laughs> Looks like Titanic. No cuts. Exactly. And uh, no, the short haircut. I just, I don't know. I just, I guess the woman who runs the hair and makeup department is a very good barber. I believe it. <laughs> the next question from the internet is: Nathan Parsons a Gemini? That is correct. That is correct. <laughs> you, win, you win a prize. Yes, Nathan Parsons is a Gemini, proudly. When is your birthday? June 16th. Ooh. And the next question we have is, how is Nathan Parsons so photogenic? <laughs> uh, well, there's not, I don't know if there's really a trick to that one. You just uh, kind of smile when people look at you and cameras look at you and, and uh, brush your teeth. I brush my teeth. Um, and that's about it. Have you ever been shy about that? When you go through the supermarket and you see these soap opera digests, the soap opera magazines, uh, sort of in the impulse buy section. Do you ever think to myself, oh my God, like what is going through? Kind of. I mean, yeah. At first, especially, you know, in, in um, you know, cause I would get all these copies of the magazines in the, in the, before they came out on shelves. And so at first it was like, ah, you know, I don't really know if I want people to see all this stuff. And then after a while it kind of became a joke. Right. Like, why are people, why, why are you looking at this? Why do you want to know what I'm, why, what? <laughs> so, um, Cause now. It, become, it becomes like less about the show. It'd be one thing if it was about people's interest in Ethan, but then mm. it becomes people's interest in Nathan. Right, exactly. And to me, it's like, I'm not that interesting, really. Well, stop that. You're interesting enough to be in this program, <laughs> and that's all that matters. <laughs> all right. And our next question in the segment, questions asked in online forums, answered by Nathan Parsons. Here is the next question. Why doesn't Nathan Parsons post on Twitter more? I don't tweet. I'm not a. I'm not a Twitterer. Um, I also don't really do Facebook. I don't really do any of that stuff. Um, do you know how to post videos to Facebook? I don't actually. I don't even know that. That came out way after my time. <laughs> <laughs> the next question people had for you is: In the beginning of your time on General Hospital, did you feel like you and your talents were being used to its full potential? Um, no. Uh, you know, I never really felt like I was um, being able to do as much as I knew I could do, you know, cause there was never really a full story that I could run. And there was, um, you know, I was always kind of playing off of other people and reacting 
more than acting, which is fun, you know, and it's easy, but it's not really um, as fulfilling, I guess. And, you know, from, from day one, you know, I kind of had a story starting out, and then it died, and then I just popped up in all these random places and, like, gave words of wisdom. And that was, you know, that became my, like, weird random role, so... <laughs> Now, do you have any say with these writers on the soap opera? Do you do you get to go to them and say, you know what, I feel like I could be used in this regard better, or you know what, I'm really good at this. Let's write that in. Do you yeah. have that capability? Um, to some extent, you know, you you can go up and and talk to the writers for sure, and talk to the producers, and tell them, you know, how you feel and what you want to do. They'll listen and they'll smile and they'll nod and they'll go, okay. <laughs> They're photogenic. <laughs> exactly. They're <laughs> Exactly. Um, but there's no guarantee that anything will actually happen. I did that for three years, went up there saying, I want a story, I want a story, you know, let me do something. Um, and they were always like, okay, you know, give it six months. And six months later, I'm up there again going, give me a story, give me a story. And <laughs> so it was this constant kind of battle. Um, and you can sway things a little bit. You know, I can change some of my lines and I can kind of try to direct the character in a certain way. Um, but ultimately, I'm not writing the show, sadly. Uh. <laughs> Lucky for you, though, when you went into audition, a lot of the writers or producers took a fancy to you because you actually came in not for the role of Ethan Lovett, which you uh, played so well. Yep. You went in for Dante. Is that yes, correct? Yes, that is correct. And so yeah. that Inferno did not happen. You went uh, in for to play Dante is Sonny's son. Yes. Sonny's, a... that's not repetitive. Um, <laughs> Sonny's son. But they were like, you know, no, 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 no. But then all of a sudden, boom, you got the call. Hey, we're going to write a part for you. How did that, you know, yeah. that make you feel? How did that transpire? Um, well, it was great. I mean, the part that I went in for was, like you said, for Dante. And the, the sides I got were he was like a mobster kind of guy in New York, um, and I had been told over and over by my agents and my managers, we're not going to do soaps, we, you know, we're not going to... We don't like Dove, yeah. we don't like Ivory, <laughs> don't Irish Springs. Don't be hygienic at all, uh, no soaps, and um, so I was auditioning and auditioning and nothing was really happening, and then General Hospital came up and, uh, and they said, you know, don't worry about it, we're not going to accept it anyway, so I was like, okay, whatever, you know, clean slate, I can do whatever I want. And uh, I went in to play this this uh, New York mobster with an Australian accent, and um, starting with the security because because why not? Starting with the security guard at the at, you know out at the gate, um, security at the front desk, the the casting director's assistant. I had this accent, and I was a hundred percent Australian. And um, I went in, read the scenes, and they were like, "That's bizarre." And, uh, but something I guess got their attention, and they called me back in, and so I. Did the whole thing again, security, security, um, all the way into the casting directors and the producers, and then they called me again, and I was like, "Wait a minute, you've got to be joking! Like this guy is a mobster. I am totally messing with you right yeah. now." And uh, eventually, they called and they called my agent manager and they said, "We want to hire your Australian actor." And my agent manager were like, "No, we sent you a Texan. Like, you know, <laughs> what are you talking about?" And they're like, "No, no, no, you sent us an Aussie." So I had to get on this conference call with my agent and my manager. And first thing, they, they were just like, what the hell did you do? <laughs> and I was like, I was just kind of messing with them. And they were like, don't ever do it again. But congratulations. Like, he got offered a part. And uh, thus was born Ethan Lovett. You were born in Australia, but raised in the States, correct? Correct, yeah. I was you were born, born in Adelaide? Adelaide, South Australia. Only lived there for six months. Mm -hmm. and then so, you, so I had a little trouble picking up an accent with the goo-goo-gaga. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. I mean, Australian accent has always been easy for me, I guess. The first six months, first year of your life, you're a sponge, right? Yeah. 
all the doctors were Australian, everyone we lived with was Australian. I guess something just kind of clicked, and I have always known that one. But yeah, I grew up in Colorado and Texas, and I had a drawl when I moved out here. So, do you still have family or friends in Australia, and have they um, watched the series? I do not have any family in Australia. Uh, my parents were just there on a work visa, so um, I know that some people do watch the show in Australia, but I personally do not know any of them. Now, here's my question. This is not from the Internet Ether, which our wonderful segment, Questions Asked in Online Forums, answered by Nathan Parsons. But this is my question. And my question has to do with Ethan, has to do with Australia. And in an Ethan Lovett voice, can you please say, I'd like a Bloomin' Onion and a Joey Burger, mate? <laughs> yeah, of course. All right. I'd like a Bloomin' Onion. In a jelly burger, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Of course. Oh, that was wonderful. Um, another question from the internet. All right. Who is Jim Warren, and why does he get to take pictures of Nathan Parsons? Jim Warren is, uh, he was a publicist back in the day, and uh, now he's just kind of a freelance photographer that has been around soaps for long enough to where he knows the producers, he knows the directors, he knows... Um, you know everyone on set and so he just kind of shows up all the time and and will take pictures and sell them to ABC soaps in depth or soap opera digest or wherever he can so that's that's how he got in back to those magazines do you ever see a story in those magazines about you or about your character and you just go come on or this isn't right or where are they getting their facts um to some extent you know I'll, I'll do interviews for them and um sometimes you read them and you're like I kind of said something like that but they're clearly paraphrasing, mm. you know, so it's not like, oh, come on. It's like, well, you know, people are really reading all this stuff and they'll hear what they want to hear, I think, you know, they don't necessarily hear it right, but they'll hear what they want to hear and that's what those magazines are for, you know. People did seem to get up in arms when they found out who you were the love child of. A lot of people mm. seem to get really um, frantic when they found out that Ethan was Luke and Holly's son. Yeah. Um, and people kind of turned on you, which yes. is a weird thing when people can't separate, you know, art from life. Yeah, it happens all the time, especially with soaps. Uh, with soaps, you're in someone's house every single day, you mm -hmm. know, so you, you become their house guest. Right. And they feel like they know you on a personal level. Um, and when, I've, when, I've, when Ethan first came on the show, there was some debate as to whether or not I was supposed to be Luke's son or Luke is the first person you meet in that very episode. Yes, yeah, he and he did end up being my At father. the Haunted Casino? At the Haunted Star, yes, the floating casino. Um, so there was some debate whether I should be his son or Robert Scorpio's son, who's a, this actor. The actor's name is Tristan Rogers, and he was on the show before I came up. He was Australian, the secret agent. Um, and so they kind of were at a toss-up. Is he Luke's son? Is he Robert Scorpio's son? And ultimately, Tony and I, the actor who plays Luke Spencer, we got along so well right from the get-go. I mean, we're kindred spirits. You know, he's also a Gemini. And, uh, so between him and I, there were always like 72 people in the room. And, uh, you know, we would just talk and get along, and we had so much in common right off the bat that Tony actually went upstairs and said, I want him to be my son. He has to be my son. We're just too similar. We have too many similarities. You know, this has to be my son and they said well we don't know we kind of want to hook him up with Lulu Spencer and you know so there was all this debate and uh, they also didn't want to break up the whole mythos of Luke and Laura which as everyone knows is this big deal that happened in the 80s and it was mm -hmm. like the During ultimate the romance the 80s, yeah, yeah. Um, people are still talking about exactly. it exactly and there's still plaques like at the studio commemorating <laughs> Luke and Laura um, and so 
if I was Luke's son, it meant that he cheated on Laura. Which ruins this whole, like, yeah. idyllic view of the thing. And I loved that. Tony <laughs> loved that, yeah. you know? Because he kind of wanted to put a knife in it. Um, and his character is not one to be faithful, if you will. So it kind of fit in that regard. And yes, I was strongly disliked for a very long time. Um, until <laughs> Until you sort of grew out of it or the storylines for you evolved into such a place yeah, where yeah. Well, Ethan I think was liked again. I was just there enough. I was in people's houses enough that they were like, okay, I guess he's all right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and going back to that photogenic thing, you just smile and laugh enough and eventually they'll love you. <laughs> As the end of 2011 happened and the stories had to come full circle for you almost, mm -hmm. they created this woman in white mm -hmm. in Windermere Castle. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, even those who don't listen or watch um, daytime TV or follow GH, Gen Ho, as I hear it called, um, <laughs> do they call it that? I don't think so. Okay. Um, <laughs> can you explain that plot line to people and um, sort of the you know, grand nature of that whimsical storyline? Yeah. Um, that was a storyline actually written by Garen Wolf, who was the outline writer for us when Bob Guza was still the writer. Um, Bob got fired. Garen became the head writer. And but Bob wrote. created you. He did create me, yes. Um, it's a weird thing to say. It is. Yeah, <laughs> Bob created me. It is weird. Um, but Garen stepped up and became the head writer for a very, for an all too brief time. And he had this great, like, very long, year-long storyline with this, like, secret gothic romance kind of very Wuthering Heights, very, uh, um, yeah, just unusual, I guess, in that regard. And so he brought in this woman in white. No one knows who she is. She doesn't. Is she a know ghost? Who she is. There's, it's unclear. That is the implication at first. Yeah. Okay. We don't. We don't really know who she is. It's just it's always like beacon, this light in windows, and and um, anyway, it was supposed to go on for a very long time. So they didn't show her face for like two months. <laughs> she didn't say her first words for like three and a half. Um, and by that time, you know, the story had already started, and then Garen was told to step down, and then they started phasing out all of his storylines which was this the whole arc was just suddenly gone and so come the turnaround around December they were like okay how do we A get rid of Nathan and then <laughs> B like wrap this whole thing up with a bow and um so the story kind of had this very gradual arc and then just came crashing down um and it was a great brief storyline you know the actress who played the woman in white Alicia is phenomenal um, and she was really fun to work with, and uh, sadly, it just wasn't meant to be. And she got killed, and then I left, and uh, that, that was the end of that. That's the most asked question. I, I sort of preface all of these fun questions asked in online forums, answered by Nathan Parsons, with um, the one that's most searched, most um, pontificated on, and that's, why did Ethan leave the show? And that sub-question is, why did Nathan leave the show? Um, well, Ethan left the show because Luke told him to leave town. I mean, that, that, I can't, it should have been better than that. I should have gone after the woman who killed, uh, Alicia's character, the woman in white. You know, I should have gone on this whole vengeance killing spree. It was, it would have been too cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Luke kind of talks me down from doing that. And then it's just like, but you should leave anyway, because I lied to Robert Scorpio and told him that you were his son, and all, it just got very convoluted. And so 
I think Ethan just kind of was like, all right, peace, and then walked out of town. And um, But then Nathan left. I left because ultimately it wasn't what I wanted to do. I had been on the show for three years. I learned a lot. You know, I met some amazing people. I had good times. Um, but I didn't want to be on a soap for the rest of my life. You know, I want to do film. I want to do um, HBO stuff. I want to mm. do Showtime stuff, Stars, Netflix, you know, whatever. Um, and you've had success in other films and in other series. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say success. I mean, I've, I've worked <laughs> outside <laughs> sure. of the soap. And, uh, you know, my agents and managers told me, you know, you got to get out. you got to do something. You... You, yeah, I know you can do more, and I know I can do more. Um, you know, so I just wanted an opportunity to, to try that. For you, what's the difference when you're doing soap acting? How do you feel like it's impacted your acting chops? Have you feel like it's not made you regress, but it's a different medium altogether? It is a different medium. Um, I mean, the main adjustment is it's multicam. So you, and because of the time constraints, I mean, we shoot 250 episodes a year. We shoot five, six, seven episodes a week. Um, and in order to do that, you have to be constantly on point. You get one rehearsal, one take. You don't get to mess up. You know, you don't get to say, cut, I, I didn't cry enough, I didn't feel, you know. You don't get to do that. You're on all the time. And with the amount of pages that you have to memorize, that muscle is worked into overdrive. And now I can look at sides and do a cold reading off book, basically. You know, I look at it for half an hour to an hour, I know it by heart. Um, so it's just really helped in, in, in regards to just being prepared and being professional and always being, uh, at your best, even if you're tired, even if you're, you know, been there for 12 hours, mm -hmm. you are always a hundred percent on task. And that, that was something I had to learn over three years, you know, so thank the show for that. And there have been plenty of people that have been the show much longer. Oh yeah. There are people who have made lifetimes and careers of soaps and, as you know, as everyone in the industry of soaps knows, it's um, there have been shows that haven't been as lucky as General Hospital mm -hmm. yeah. that uh, are falling by the wayside. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that, and what do you make of um, it becoming a sort of on its last breath? Well, you know, I think with TiVo and with Netflix and with all these, you don't need to have a show on TV at 2 o'clock. Because at 2 o'clock, you can watch your favorite primetime shows. You can go watch Game of Thrones on a Tuesday, even though it airs on Sunday. You know, there's no time constraints anymore as to when things can be on the air. And soaps, because it all, it's all character-driven, you know, so knowing can really die, nothing can really happen, because all the characters have to be there all the time, year-round. Um, so it makes it difficult to create sort of this character-driven drama that never ends there is no beginning middle and end there's no climax there's there's none of that you know so it show's been on since 1964 on the air at two o'clock for how many years is that now 45 46 years that's a long time to have a tv show i think it's difficult with everything that's going on now to have a show that's on every single day you know with the smallest budget you can possibly imagine. You know, we, we don't have the budget to make big explosions and to do outdoor shots. We have to do everything inside on a soundstage. And it's just kind of this crushing pressure of, you know, a product. You have to constantly have this product. And you can't do that when you have a cast of 30 people and a crew of 100 people and do a show every single day. It's just not feasible. 
So it's sad because it has been, soaps have been such a staple, but there's not really room for them anymore, I think. And it, it's hard to see, but I guess that's evolution, right? So what's next for Nathan Parsons? What's in the evolution of his career? Book something, ideally soon, and start working. We'll start working again, man. You know, I, when I first got off the show, my manager asked me, he was like, okay, so where are you going to go on vacation? You know, you finally ended this thing, you know, so where are you going to go? And I said, dude, I'm not going anywhere until I get a job. <laughs> you know, and it, that was, what, two months ago now, three months ago? And, uh, yeah, now just still grinding it out and, and loving it. So hopefully a series, hopefully something. Do you have anything to say to your fans or your devotees? Because you do have a lot of people that look up to you and respect you. Um, well... I mean, thank you. Mainly, you know, it, it was a, a good hell of a run. I think three years, that's a long time for me. And thank you for coming around on my side and, and being good to me for three years, you know. And keep watching because I'll be back. Excellent. We really appreciate that. And that is a teaser to end all teasers. And uh, we thank you, Nathan, for coming on the show. And we hope you'll be back on TP with TP. Absolutely. It'll be my pleasure. Take care. You too, Tom. All right, welcome back to TP with TP. I'm here with the front man for Barry Harris and the Euphoria, Mr. Barry Harris. Barry, welcome on the show. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Barry, uh, you are originally from Philadelphia. Is that so? That's right. I'm an East Coaster. Now, how has uh, the Philadelphia soul impacted your music? It's really interesting because they had a great production sense when they were making records back in the 1970s. Very lush, very orchestrated. And that's uh, part of the elements I try to include in my music. That's really not so-called hip these days, but I, I think it's really cool, and I think it's a two for a comeback. Now, I find your music to be quite hip in a sort of retro Thank way. You. you really bring, you know, such joy to uh, your music, and I really respect that and admire that, and I wish that all young artists had that fire in them. When you were young, you had about 16 minutes of fame a few times. I had more than 16, I've had 17 minutes of fame. <laughs> Can you explain to our listeners who are unfamiliar with the younger Barry Harris what happened? Uh, well, one of the things I was trying to do, I thought, maybe I'd become famous, uh, and then I'd get to go to Hollywood. <laughs> it was, you know, this, that's the American Idol stereotype. You, you, you know, you have this dream, and then they discover you on some reality show, and they put you on. So I thought that was the path. And I would go on anything and everything I could find. And how old were you when you were having this vision? Uh, you know, 10, 11, 12. Uh, I was very young. I was very, I was a visionary, even that young. <laughs> I did not know any other way to do it, so I drew my audition tape in the mail or put my CD out there. Most of the time they said no, but there was that one out of a uh, hundred times where they would actually say yes, and they put me on some type of show or something, and uh, I'd be on TV for about 15 seconds. And it was really, it was a really interesting time to just, I don't know, I really got, got the opportunity to just see what the business is like, and uh, I've had some of the worst things happen to me during that time in my life, and it led me to believe that, you know, if that's the worst thing that ever happens to me, hey, this business is for me. Nothing else bad can happen. When you mention that, I don't mean to open any old wounds, but what, what could have been so bad about having that exposure? Did people take advantage of you and your naivete? What was it? Well, it was a lot of uh, people who just, uh, you know, you didn't know what the editing's going to look like, and then they put you on television, and you realize they kind of edit a way to have a laugh at your expense. 
See, I really wasn't, I wasn't as self-actualized as I am now, so it, it stings a lot when you see something edited around there making fun of you. And if they do that now to me, I, I'd have a laugh too. I'd, I'd join in and think it's funny. But, you know, I, I took myself very seriously at that time. One <laughs> as the, most 10-year-olds do. I, I did. And, and then one example is like American Idol Juniors. Uh, I did an audition, and they put the thing, that, I didn't get anywhere except for the cattle call audition, but they actually put my audition on television, and... What they did was they edited it in just a hilarious way to make, make my interview look hilarious. And to me, that just was awful. And then it's compounded by all the kids in the neighborhood see it. And it's like, oh, man, why did I do that? I hate doing this. <laughs> and, and then I said, you know what? I, I survived this. And, you know, it, if I survive this, then the music business is for me. You in this semi-professional career of yours, you got to meet Dr. Phil, Larry King, Ryan Seacrest, or they at least spoke about you. Well, they spoke They spoke about me. The Dr. Phil one was interesting. Uh, of the three above you mentioned, I've never even seen or met before, but they knew who I was. They were certainly talking about me. <laughs> And what did they what did they say? Well, it was interesting. Dr. Phil's another one of those stories where uh, of bad bad decision. I, I saw this prompt. A producer reached out to my family and I and says, do you want to come on and talk on a show about gifted children? I thought this was going to be a great idea. I was dead wrong. What happened was we get on the stage and the, you know, Dr. Phil comes out, then they play the music, and he says... Well, I'd like to welcome you all to the show, and today's topic is about pushy parents. Parents who have gone too far. Oh no! So we we kind of you've been blindsided. We were blo we were kind of blindsided a little bit there. So uh, they said gifted children, but then the thesis right. of the story was exactly. pushy parents. What it was, it was a lure because you know if if the problem terrible was, Barry. If you think you're you have pushy parents, or you or do you think you're pushy with your kids? Come on the Doctor Phil show and tell us how much of an idiot you are. Do people don't do that? So what they do is they tell you uh, if you're do you think you're a great parent and you have the best special child in the world? Come on the show and talk about it. And we truly felt that's what we were going to talk about, and that is not what that <laughs> oh, show ended up being. What did your parents say to that? Uh, I, I, I honestly don't know because like they just went into this shell of, okay, I, I don't want anybody in this world to, to see my face again after this whole experience. And it was difficult because we had a month between when they taped the show and then a month where we, I don't know, where we knew this thing was going to air. We knew it was not going to be like a great thing. And so we, when it aired, we thought, oh, maybe no one's going to see this. It's the number one rated talk show in the world. How, you know, when people are not going to see that, yeah, they saw that. And uh, we went to the mall that night, and people were coming up to us saying, oh my god, you're the, you're the crazy people from Dr. Phil. They said you're the crazy people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, dude, if, they, if you're on Dr. Phil, you're crazy. That does, does not mean by any chance. And I should say for the record, that I think Dr. Phil's a very a good guy. He's a very hands-on uh, production leader in his talk show. But I think on that particular show... Um, he did not do his homework. He was handed his notes by his producers. Okay, these are pushy parents. Go. Here's your show. Three, two, one, you're on. And then he does his, goes through the motions and realizes, oh, wait, this is really not what I think it is. And it seems like if you ever watch his show, he really does his homework and he does such a great job at, at you know, researching the topic. And I think this is very early on in the show. This was seven, eight years ago at the very beginning. I'm pretty sure he's, he's come a long way. Uh, but what's really interesting is that the, the reason the other people come into it, um, I was slipping around channel surfing around this time with the Dr. Phil's on Larry King Live, and then I sit, I watch, I keep the channel on, and he starts talking about me, and they roll B-roll me, 
And he says, Barry's such a talented kid, wonderful kid. He's written musicals. He has uh, keyboard skills and all. You're going to see a lot of this kid. I think you're going to see more of him. And he was right. He said that on Larry King Live uh, <laughs> at national television. That's got to make you feel good. It did make me feel good. You know, something great came out of that. You know, I, it's a shame. Well, I'll just say about that is that it was a shame that it turned out the way it did. I would have loved to have had a real actual discussion that wasn't under any false pretenses. And I'm still always down to talk about my experiences growing up and what it's like to survive as a person who has a dream. You know, it, they do everything to kind of chip away at your dream when you're growing up. And I never, I never let that get me down. It really never, never occurred to me that I should let this go. And I think that's what Dr. Phil would honestly prescribe. He would. I think he would. I think he'd agree. Can I tell you my favorite Dr. Phil quote? Yeah. He's talking about when um, having two, you know, sides of an argument or two sides of a story, and he always says, "I don't care how thin the flapjack is; it still has two sides." <laughs> so that's my favorite Dr. <laughs> Phil quote. That's great. So you have this groovy new album out. Yes, it is. Uh, we just came out in December, and. Uh, it was really an incredible process to make. This is probably the project of a lifetime so far. That is. <laughs> and this album is called Just a Mile Away. Yes. And this song we're going to play a clip from is entitled California Princess, yes? Yes. All right, so here's a clip. Barry Harrison Euphoria, California Princess. Well, that was great. I, it sounded awesome to me. <laughs> and uh, it's going to get a whole lot more awesome because here is the full version of Barry Harrison Euphoria's California Princess.
thank you for sharing that with us. Would you please share with us how Barry Harris and the Euphoria came about? How did you find the Euphoria? I had this idea when I got on the campus uh, when I at USC when I was a freshman. Everybody was starting bands. That's what they knew how to do. I knew how to be a solo artist and create you know records in my basement. So this appealed to me. I wanted to be in the live performance realm, but I didn't know how I was going to do it. So I went and I looked at other bands and to see how they were doing. There was one particular band that stood out to me. It was the this guy, his name was Luke Walton, and he had this band out that was playing around campus, playing all the events. And I just said, I want to do it like that. That's exactly how I want to do it. So I pretty much asked most of the people, including Luke himself, uh, to be a part of the Euphoria. When I started out, I really didn't know what I was doing. All I knew was I was just having a bunch of people play my music and play it loud. But over time, we developed a lot of great players in the band, and uh, we kind of got the sense of what we really wanted to do. And what we wanted to do is bring back that great rock and roll sound that I think, you know, if you may have heard of the Darkness on the Edge of Town or Damn the Torpedoes, some of my favorite uh, rock albums. And I realized that nobody's doing that right now. So I uh, enlisted Luke Walton, uh, who is my, was my creative partner in all this, to produce this album with me, or the EP. And it's really, we wanted to try to go back to that and bring that back. I mean, yeah, I mean how many people have had songs that, that you put in stadiums and pl they play them? for the next 30, 40 years and they fill up arenas. I, I want to do that. Knowing you as well as I do, I feel like sometimes I know you too well, um, <laughs> that that's definitely going to happen. And uh, the next song we're going to play is off your uh, new EP as well, and this song is called You Know Me Too Well. Yeah. What can you tell us about that song? Well, it was a song that oh, I was doing Grammy Camp, which is a great program they have uh, for people in high school over the summers. And, and through Grammy Camp, you got to meet amazing artists from oh, yes. Jesse McCartney to Gavin Rossdale to yeah. Ricky Minor. But I think the more important thing is I got to meet some incredible people that I've you know worked with right now. And I think I'll... People rising with. in the ranks with you. Yeah, uh, Justin Clunk, who plays on the record. Brandon Woodward also plays on the record. You know, I think we're going to be working together for the rest of our lives. We can only hope. Here's Barry Harris and the Euphoria with You Know Me Too Well. behind for certain I go down and I lock the back door you'll never get what you ask for everywhere you used to be you're always there living in my shadow you live in my Seldom if I figure it all out 
still dancing to that great i you know i i put that in the show as a way to be the emotional climax of the show if you ever see our live shows what we end the the the, the song with we had luke and Justin, my guitar player and saxophone player respectively they engage in this incredible dueling solo it goes on and on and on for as long as we feel like it and <laughs> and it has such an intensity that i think has been missing from a lot of live shows that i've seen recently uh, i mean it's still in the acts like bruce uh, bruce springsteen i i saw i've seen him many times and he has that intensity, and I kind of wanted to have that. And it, what what really drives that intensity is the passion. You can do with nothing but the passion. Now, is there anyone who expresses that passion who potentially has the same first name as you that you look up to in um, music? Well, I can only think of one particular artist. That is uh, Barry White. Oh, <laughs> there's a red herring. But there's also also there's another one as well. His name is Barry Manilow. <laughs> Now, tell me what you love about Barry Manilow and if you have any sort of relationship to him. Well, my parents met through a Barry Manilow fan club and they named me after <laughs> Barry Manilow. 
Now, what's incredible is they dragged me to the my first concert when I was, I think I was three and a half. You know what? You know what that's like to bring a toddler to a to a concert. They're gonna scream the whole time. I mean, unless it's Miley Cyrus. I mean, they're gonna scream anyway. Yeah. But but they, I the loud music starts and I screamed and it was awful. But they brought me back in and all of a sudden I had this revelation. It's, Three and a half year old Barry has yeah, a revelation. Yeah, I actually had a revelation at this moment. I saw there's a guy on the stage doing all this stuff. And I'm very familiar with this stuff because my parents played the CD around me all the time, and I figured it out. It's not a utility. It's an actual guy on that stage, uh, you know, creating something really, really incredible. Um, and he, and all the while, he looked like he was having a really fun time. So I said, oh, well, I, I can do that, you know. <laughs> I, I, it looked, really looked easy. He made it look easy. The thing that I admire most about Barry Manilow is that he is the ultimate professional. Uh, he's very articulate with his ideas. Uh, he is a visionary with his vision. And I think I don't see that in a lot of artists that I hear about or, or who I've uh, had the pleasure of seeing live. It's clear he is the one in control of his vision and that has been the biggest inspiration for me as an artist. As an artist, it can be very hard to promote yourself in a sea of people trying to rise in the tide of uh, pop music. Where can people find you, and how do you feel you can separate yourself from other people? You know, that I think that's a really good question because I put the album out, and it really, you know, people are, okay, cool, you know, because everybody seems to be putting an album out these days. Uh, but of all the things that I shared on the internet, like I shared tracks, I've shared uh, just a lot of things related to the album, the thing that got the most response was the album cover. I said, hey, everybody, surprise, here's the album cover. Hundreds and hundreds of people so, like responded to it, commented, liked, and shared it. it that, that, to me, it really says a lot about this. Uh, so what I did to put this out there was I, obviously, it's on iTunes. Uh, if you can just go look that up. Uh, but that's usually not enough. So I went and had and pressed physical copies and had some nice artwork made. Uh, and so all of that, you can always find out more about that. I have my Facebook, which is Barry Harris Music after the sl Facebook.com slash. Facebook.com slash Barry Harris Music. Yes. And then the Twitter, my username is uh, Barry Harris 1991. I personally run both of those and update those very frequently. And I'm always very in touch and always sharing news about, uh, about my career and what's going on. I would love to keep in touch with the people out there who are listening because I'd like to get to know who that is get to know the real people. It's hard playing my music for a bunch of musicians and critics and, uh, and connoisseurs. I want to play it for the real people. And that's, I think that's the goal that I really hope to accomplish with this disc. When do the real people get to hear it next? When's your next show? Uh, well, I have a show on May 23rd uh, at the Milk Boy Coffee in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, which is uh, it's going to be a acoustic EP release show for all my friends and family on the East Coast who never get to see me live. And then I'm in talks right now to do a gig in Cleveland, Ohio uh, with my best friend, uh, Brett Frompson, who is a hometown star there. He's been doing well here in L.A. and he's going to do the same strategy as me, go home and play a uh, hometown show, except I'm going to piggyback on this one. So we're trying to find a date for that. But So I'm coming to Cleveland. That's the big news there. Well, thank you for uh, coming to us at TPTP. And um, everyone go out, support Barry Harrison Euphoria. Great music, just as good a guy. Uh, and thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Tom. Alright, that's our program. We really want to thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did.
Oh, hey, guy from my apartment complex. How you doing? Uh, you know, it's Friday. Oh, yeah? You get the, you get kind of down on, on these type of days? Yeah, I, I get a case of the Fridays. Friday? But people usually say they have a case of the Mondays. What do you mean by that? You know, something about Fridays and about, like... Rebecca Black? <laughs> it's Friday. Friday. <laughs> Friday. That's the most haunting song that I know. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, what's 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 ailing you, pal? Well, you know, it's just it's, it's one more week that just sort of passes you by, you know? But Friday is the weekend. You're, you're focusing on the end part of weekend? I, it just, it's, it's the beginning of the end. Like, since it is Friday, it is the beginning of the weekend... Take out the weak part, beginning of the end. What um, have you done to combat this, if anything? Can you do anything to combat this? Well, if, if wallowing in your own misery counts as, as combating it, then I, it I, fight, might. I fight really hard. Good, good. What else is going on? What bothers you about Friday so particularly? You know, it just, it's, uh, like, I have things I want to accomplish every week. I have the same particular thing. I want to accomplish every week for about two years. It never gets done. It just keeps going. Is there any way you can break it down? I'm not trying to get all Dr. Phil on you, but we talked about that a little early in the episode, episode for those who are listening. I wasn't here. But um, how do you feel about breaking down the day? How do you feel about just taking it one day at a time rather than a week at a time as like an objective? Well, I, I I try to take it a week at a time, but uh, it, my problem is mainly a business problem. So by the time the weekend rolls around, it's just like, well, you're just on hold for 48 hours. You know, just just chomp at the bit for 48 hours. Not is there a way you can look forward to something on the weekend? Is there a way to say, oh, I'm going to partake in uh, golf on the weekend, or I'm going to play a game of chess or something on the weekend? Like, I, I suppose a more optimistic person would be able to do that. Uh as an opening to an envelope of wonderful things as opposed to licking the stamp on my misery. <laughs> uh, One way. <laughs> um, well, let's cheer you up and cheer our listeners up. Can you throw a pun our way? Oh, well, even even on, on the darkest Friday, it is still the best two-week period of the year. It Great. is the opening of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Hey! Which I know means so much to so many people in this country. Absolutely. But Maybe uh, not America, but North America? We're in. I can I can cover pretty much the entire map with my with my hockey puns. Hit so, me. My predictions. Uh, I believe the Los Angeles Kings will either have a lowercase Q quick series or an uppercase Q quick series. Uh, and I don't know if you heard, but um, the coach of St. Louis isn't announcing which of his two great goaltenders he's going to start. Instead, he's leaving a series of hints around the Scott Trade Center. Blues clues. <laughs> anything for the east coasters among us well you know um i did pick before the season started that the new york rangers would be in the stanley cup finals excellent i support uh, that and out west i've changed my pick i picked los angeles but now i'm just winging it i'm picking detroit i don't even know what to say <laughs> ever hear that clap in here i don't know what you're talking about I don't, I've been having this, this weird thing recently. I, Every time I clap in here, the lights go out. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. I don't know. Hmm. It's good for your listeners at home, I'm sure. I should ask the super. Ah. 
Well, I actually have to talk to the super about my new business venture. Oh, what are you doing these days, guy from the apartment complex? Uh, well, you know that I, I have my hairless cat, Toby. Yes, yes. Uh, for those listeners at home, guy from the apartment complex really likes hairless cats, particular his, Toby. Yes, and, and so now I've, I've branched out into, into breeding hairless cats. A ha- now, let's be more specific. A hairless cat is a sphinx, right? Uh, yes, a, a sphinx. But people just go by hairless cats now? People call them hairless cats, and I feel like sphinx is a bit pretentious, and hairless really makes people understand. <laughs> okay. So how is Toby? Toby, Toby's great. Toby actually is so good that... Toby with an I? Uh, a Y. Okay. Um, that people saw Toby on my Tumblr, and they want to breed with Toby, not the their their cats. Um, so it's getting weird I fast. I, I don't have a date, but I guess Toby does. <laughs> well, we wish you the best of luck um, finding the right match for Toby. Will you um, perhaps post on our website later where you found out? Yeah, yeah, totally. As soon as I get my socks, totally. Um, it's, yeah, and also look for guy from the apartment complex's socks. It's all on our website, thepulsegrounds.com. Thank you very much for dropping by. Thanks. All right, that's our program. We want to thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We want to take this moment to thank our guests. Thanks to Nathan Parsons, Barry Harris, Guy from the Apartment Complex. Special thanks to Sammy J for the Rhythms. Thanks to Bop as always. Thank you, Trent. You'll see us next time, or you'll hear us next time, on TP with TP. That's the podcast with Tom Polos. There's always more at thepolosgrounds.com. Happy New Year's.